Hello everyone, this is Heath with the Music Technology Teacher Network, www.mutechteachernet.com. Welcome to today's episode of the podcast, Mutech Teacher Talk. Today I'm going to be having a discussion with Dr. Stephanie Langle. Dr. Langle is on the music education faculty at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. Dr. Langle teaches music technology at Berkeley and is well known around the country as a lecturer and clinician on topics of music education and music technology. I hope you enjoyed the discussion today I'm having with Dr. Stephanie Langle. Hello, how are you today? Welcome to Mutech Teacher Talk. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm I'm really excited to finally get a chance to have a conversation with you. And uh, I, we were talking uh, just before, I feel like we've been sort of in similar circles in this music technology world. And it's, uh, but it's actually the first time we've had a chance to uh, get together and chat. So thanks so much again. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I am as well. Thank yeah. you. So you are at Berkeley College in Boston mm-hmm. and a lot of people... Um, know about Berkeley. And at least for me, when I think about Berkeley, I think a lot, you know, about the music industry and careers as, uh, you know, performers, producers, audio engineers, and things like that. But Berkeley actually has a music education degree and a track, which you are a big part of. And I I, want to get into that. But before we start talking too much about Berkeley, uh, I want to always like to start just by learning a little bit about uh, your background, like your early experiences in music, like when you were a kid, what was the first thing in music that sort of began to catch your ear and spark your interest in making music? The first memory that I have is, I don't know exactly how old I was. I think I might've been maybe six or seven. My parents got me <laughs> this little keyboard. They had them back then. Uh, and it was on it was on its own stand. I, I'm guessing, you know, it maybe had like 37 keys or something, you know, I don't know. It was a little bit more than 25, but uh, I think it was maybe 37 keys just had one sound. And I used to just sit there and pick out melodies of TV commercials and, you know, music that my parents were listening to. And it was, that was just the first thing that uh, I really, I, guess would be my first memory of making music is doing that and fourth grade you know I took my mom and we went to instrument night and I dragged her up to the stage and I'm like I want to play that and it was the saxophone so I played alto sax all the way through high school you know I did concert band jazz band uh marching band we had a we had a really terrific music program I was really blessed to have grown up with a really creative um, music director who was also a great arranger. And our marching band program was phenomenal in terms of the arrangements that he did. Uh, You know, we used to do Beatle medleys and all kinds of stuff. And uh, it was just really a lot of fun. And there was a lot of improvising going on on the field, which we would get in trouble for. But (laughs) 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 it was really fun. And he was great. And the same thing with the uh, jazz ensemble, you know, and we competed at uh, PMEA. I grew up in Pittsburgh. And then I went to uh, Duquesne University and I actually was a double major. I was a music ed jazz conservatory major. And I started as a saxophone player But uh, crazy me, (laughs) I decided I never officially had taken piano lessons in my life. I always sort of played by ear. You know, I read treble clef, but I didn't learn to read bass clef because I never took piano lessons. And um, so I decided to change my major to piano (laughs) when I was in uh, Duquesne. So it took me a little longer to get out of uh, undergrad because of that. But while it was really hard, <laughs> you know, because I had to do, uh, uh, you know, take the classical route, because if you were going to be a piano major, you had to do that. I was also t- able to uh, study some jazz piano. And I just had a phenomenal piano teacher who was very patient. And, uh, you know, it's like sweating blood, but I did it. You know, I did my junior recital. I did my senior recital. I did the whole thing. And then I was a little tired after undergrad uh, in terms of school, 
which I think happens sometimes for to people. So I actually, I had met somebody who was from New York City, you know, during my undergrad time. So when I graduated from Duquesne, I took a trip across the country to uh, hang out with uh, some family for a few weeks. I went to California and then I came back and I moved to New York and I started, I I started grad school for a little while at uh, NYU in their uh, master's program at NYU, master's of uh, music ed. And then I decided I just didn't really want to do that right then. So I proceeded to kind of do the New York City thing where you work as many different jobs as you can to support your musical habit. (laughs) you know, and I met some um, singer songwriters that I worked with. And I did that for quite some time. And then I started eventually kind of getting back into teaching via, I used to take my guitar and go play birthday parties for kids, sing and play birthday parties for kids. And then I was able to get a job at a pre-K through eight school. And I started teaching there and then um, in Brooklyn. And once I did that, I was ready to go back to uh, get my my degree. And I went to teacher's college. And so then I got a, a job and started the music technology, middle school, high school music technology program in the school. But the thing that I want to mention, though, is that when I went to teacher's college, I met some pretty pivotal people in my life. And the first one was Jim Frankel. He and I went to grad school together. And Jim and I actually met the summer before we started uh, grad school in 1994, September 1994. And that summer before we started grad school, we met uh, working at the same summer camp on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. And so, you know, we went through uh, graduate school together. And then I also met Lee Whitmore. And Lee Whitmore was working on his PhD at Teachers College at the time, and he was teaching the only technology class at Teachers College. And Jim and I both took Lee's technology class at Teachers College. And at that time, Lee uh, Santree had just started the educational division of CORG, and he was the director of that. And by this time, I was really pretty fascinated with making music um, with a DAW, you know, uh, digital performer was what I was using back then. And, and so it fascinated me what Lee was doing at Cork with Soundtree. And so I kept bugging him for a job. And finally, one day, out of the blue, he called me and said, I need somebody to go set up, uh, you know, a lab for the Rhode Island Music Educators Conference. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, I never did that before, but but he's like, you know, it's not hard, you know, we'll deliver all this stuff and you just kind of have to connect it together. And the person who was giving the session at the Rhode Island Music Educators Conference was Tom Rudolph. And that's how I met Tom Rudolph. And Um, I don't know if you've met Tom, he's, you know, he retired from the music education world several years back now, but I, I still miss him. He was an amazing music educator and actually was one of the founding members of time and really wrote the first book about using technology in the music classroom for music educators. And a lot of the work that came out of the early version of time, you know, that first book that looked at all the nine national standards and developed the strategy book. He was a real mastermind behind that. And I just was so lucky to have him as a mentor. You know, I met him there and then, and the way that I actually got into doing what I still do today, which is in the summertime uh, doing, you know, grad credit classes for in-service teachers he was really the person who mentored me with that. And, you know, I used to go and be his assistant at Vandercook or not Vandercook, um, Villanova in the summer. And, you know, I met some other people doing that. I met Dave Mash and Dave Mash was actually how I got to Berkeley. So I, I tell my students that, uh, you know, graduate school is important, 
for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is you never know who you're going to meet. And if I had not gone to graduate school at teacher's college at that moment, I would not have met those people that really, that was the beginning of me, you know, being here today, really. Yeah. You know, it's uh, relationships are, uh, you know, so very important. And gosh, there's several things that you hit on in that. I want to kind of back up and, and ask a little bit to kind of get right back to where we're, we're stopping here. But it's interesting. There were uh, some of your experiences are uh, somewhat similar, I guess, maybe to mine. But, you know, the first instrument that I was interested in was also the saxophone. And it's, you know, I can remember, I, you know, I, I'm a, I was born in the <clears throat> early seventies. Um, so oh, I'm way, I'm way older than you. <laughs> so it's, but, you know, during that time there, you know, the sound, cause neither of my parents were, you know, my mother was an elementary school teacher and my dad. So was my mother. Yeah. And my dad worked uh, in a grocery store. So, uh, but, you know, we always had music in the house, you know, playing and, yeah. but, you know, they weren't musicians. Um, but I can remember when I was growing up, uh, there were two in particular that I, that still stick out to me. One was a song by Billy Joel called Just The Way You Are. And Billy Joel had a guy in his band. That Bill Woods. Some, yeah. And, uh, and that saxophone solo. Right. The I mean, woods. It all was, the way. Yeah. I was just like, I would sing. I can, and I could still, if I could put my hands on the saxophone right now, I, could, I think I could probably uh, still play that solo because I wanted to learn how to play right. that solo. And the other was Bruce Springsteen's and the E Street Band and his, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Clarence Clemens. Oh, yeah. The sound of, of, you know, that saxophone just, just captured you know, my imagination and it's, you know, I'm, I'm think I'm trying to think, but you know, today's in the last, you know, 20, 25 years, you don't hear a lot of saxophone on the radio. No, anymore. I know it was a thing back then. Right. I will tell you a little fun fact. So, um, cause I am, I'm, I'm older than you are, but, um, my cousin who's two years older than me had gone to college, uh, a little tiny college, north of uh, Pittsburgh, actually up kind of near Erie uh, called Allegheny College. And when I was a junior in high school, some friends of mine and I hopped in the car and we went up to see my cousin. And we went up there specifically because Bruce Springsteen in the Born to Run tour was doing the college circuit. And I essentially saw that tour in a really small, it would be like a high school auditorium right it was crazy that's and amazing I, just, I mean i still have vivid memories of that and and you know and clarence clemens you know being a big part of that for me because you know that was my my instrument you know so, yeah yeah that's that's amazing and um you know the other thing i want to mention too that it it blows my mind that uh you got to college and just decided uh, that you were going to change to piano. Yeah. By, I don't, uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> no, well, you know, it's funny because, you know, sometimes people will ask, and my, my daughter right now is uh, just finished her junior year at the university of Georgia as a music education major. But some people will sometimes ask, you know, you know, if I have any musical regrets and it was that I didn't learn how to play piano when I was younger, because when I got into college, you know, you have to pass that piano proficiency. And I was, I was not, um, I was not a very good student. My, you know, my musical superpower was I was really good at sight reading, but the idea of like sitting in a practice room for hours and hours was, uh, was never one of my strengths, but with yeah. P- with piano, I, I have a very vivid memory of, of going to my final piano proficiency, uh, Dr. Martha Thomas, and I just hacked my way through it. And uh, she looked at me over her glasses and I went, Dr. Thomas, I promise if you'll just, <laughs> if you just let me through, I will never try to teach anyone how to play the piano and as much as possible, I won't even touch one. She looked at me and said, you promise. 
And I went, <laughs> yes, ma'am. And she went C minus. And I was like, that's all I need. Yeah, that's, that's all, all I need. I need. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, that's yeah. so funny. Well, you know, for me, I mean, even to this day, you know, I grew up reading treble clef. So I'm not a great reader on the piano uh, at all. So, I mean, I don't think this is true now because, you know, I'm much older now. And of course those brain cells don't work exactly the same way, but back then the way that I had like a photographic memory. So I would like sweat in that practice room, learning that Bach and that Chopin and all that stuff. But I wasn't, I, you know, it was just ingrained in my brain, but I was not reading it, you know? Right. I was always pretty good at playing by ear. So I think my ear is what got me through all of it more than my sight reading. I, I know that's a fact because, you know, I just never became a good reader on the right. piano. Right. And I also wanted to you know, bring up uh, Jim Frankel, who's a great guy. And uh, I'm trying to think, I probably first met Jim maybe five or six. No, it's like maybe six or seven years ago. And it's amazing because the more people that I meet in this field and, you know, in music education in general, that he's touched so many people. And even me personally, there was, you know, I started in a, um, an event here in Georgia. I took over as the music technology chair for our Georgia Music Educators Association. And I started a an event, I guess, five years ago uh, when I did that called our Music Technology Student Showcase. Because, you know, at the time we had music tech programs in Georgia, but those students and those teachers weren't getting a lot of attention, really. So there was no precedent uh, for this in the state, which was really pretty cool because I was able to sort of make it however I wanted it. And so anyway, but he was at one of those first, I think it may have been the first showcase we did. And he came up to me afterwards and I knew by that time, because, you know, Jim, uh, you know, has his uh, company music first. And so he goes all over the country and all over the world to different mm -hmm. conferences and stuff. And, and it was sort of just kind of an offhanded comment, but he came up afterwards and he goes, you know, I've been to a lot of places. He goes, this is one of the best events like this I've seen. He said, keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And, and again, I, he may not have known it at the time, but like just that one little comment, that one little piece of encouragement from him had a really huge impact on, because really at the time I was sort of making it up as I went along. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I talked to a lot of people and they seem to have similar stories, similar gym stories, Yeah, you know, yeah. or just a little comment, but I think it also speaks to a lot of times as teachers, you know, we may say things to students and not think a lot about it at the time, but you know, those people, those relationships we build, like we were talking about earlier and particularly as a teacher, you know, the, the those comments that we make, those bits mm. of encouragement can have a tremendous impact on people. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I love Jim. I, I consider him one of my dearest friends, really, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, professionally, but also personally, I, you know, I, it's not like I talk to him every day or anything like that. But we have a we have a great connection that I really value. And he's done so much to push the envelope, you know, in terms of what's the word, I guess, in a certain way, evangelizing, right? Uh, about sure. the, the, uh, the potential of, uh, and the value of, of the use of music technology in the classroom. And I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, the time organization started in the mid nineties, you know, and we know that music education is a slow boat when it comes to evolution. And, you know, there's so many things I think we could talk about in terms of that. I think some of it actually starts with higher ed, to be honest with you. And well, it starts with higher ed. And I think there are political things too, with, you know, state uh, education departments and, you know, what are, what's expected for licensure and all that kind of stuff is all tied into that, I think. Right. So, and it, not that standards aren't important. I do think that they are important, but I don't think they are important when it comes to the point where it's strangling a program, right? And keeping a program as well, this is the only way that we can see that music can fit into our curriculum. 
you know? Yeah. And we, oh gosh, what a rabbit hole we could go down with this. Oh but, yeah. You know, years ago, another person that had a lot of influence on me, particularly early on when I got into music technology, which is a story I've told other places. So I won't get into it, but it was not necessarily intentional, but uh, John Melenzak was mm -hmm. uh, a big influence uh, when he was mm -hmm. with Hal Leonard and he's now uh, head of NAM, which is great. But I remember in one of his sessions, uh, you know, early on, he, when he was talking about assessment, he said, you know, you have, to, he goes, if it's important, you have to assess it. Right. You know, if you, if you, if you don't, the students won't perceive something as being important if it's not something that you're going to assess. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of relates to what you're talking about, because when it comes to uh, university music education training programs, what they teach is what we value. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, when I speak to different music teachers, you know, particularly here in Georgia who have a music education degree and they're like uh, music technology, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And I, I'm like, well, listen, I said, if you have a music education degree uh, from anywhere in the state, I can guarantee you, you don't know how to do this because they don't teach us how to do this. Mm -hmm. And when I started, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, what's the old saying? Fake it till you make it. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I do begin to see uh, some of it changing and shifting. Like mm -hmm. I said, I have a perspective of, you know, having my own daughter who's going through a, you know, music ed program uh, at the University of Georgia. And it is changing, but it is, mm -hmm. it is still, you know, so very slow, but, but yeah, I don't know. And I do want to get into talk about what y'all do at, at Berkeley, because I think y'all have kind of a different approach to stuff, but, but yeah, that's a problem. I think until our teacher training programs recognize that this is a, a way for people to create and make and share music that it's, it really isn't valued because they don't teach it. Right. And it's the thing about technology, as we know, I mean, nobody taught me really either. Right. There's a certain part of that lifelong learner stuff that you have to incorporate into your life. And the other piece of it is that it's time consuming to learn. And you think about, you know, all the other things that teachers are tasked with besides teaching, right, in a school day. So it can be hard to manage, especially if you're, you know, in an environment that's not really uh, promoting it, right? And it almost sounds like a cliche at this point, but it's like, well, COVID changed a lot of things, but it's true, right? I think in a certain way, it really forced all of us, regardless, to have to engage with technology. I think that now that we're not in those COVID times, you know, teachers have kind of gone back to, well, I don't really need to use that as much anymore because now I can be back in the classroom and all that. It's hard to think about, okay, well, how can I be hybrid about it? How can I use the technology? And every teacher is using technology in their school at this point. Forget about the music technology. You have to use technology in school. I mean, you know, you can't say maybe it's 100% across the country, but it's, you know, it, it, it's pretty. It's got to be pretty close. Got to be pretty close, right? But, you know, um, that's, uh, you know, I think COVID really put the spotlight on a lot of things for a lot, for not only for teachers, but also for students. And, you know, I do think that, you know, I don't know about you and what you've been seeing with your students, but I know, and from talking to other people as well, that we're in this place right now with, with younger students, and I'll say like younger higher ed students, where they didn't have a certain kind of maybe independence of thinking and, you know, all of those things, those mental health issues that came into play with COVID are playing out right now in a way that's really difficult. And I think that that's even more reason to provide safe spaces for students to be able to express themselves. And technology is one of those ways to be able to, music technology and music making is one of those ways for students to be able to do that. Yeah, I know, you know, particularly in, I, you know, I teach middle school. So I'm 12 to 14 year olds, uh, you know, is who I teach. And 
my daughter was, I call her, she graduated in the class of COVID. Uh, she graduated high school in 2020. You know, she was among that group of students. You know, she didn't have a senior prom. Right. Um, Neither did my know, daughter. Same, she, same age. Yeah. yeah you know, she, they didn't have a graduation ceremony. Right. Right. And those are, you know, are, are big sort of you know, bookmark events in your life that kind of mm-hmm. uh, the close of one chapter and the beginning of another. And it just, then even in her first year in college where she was required to live on campus. And so we paid, you know, for her to be in the dorm and be on the meal plan where essentially she sat in her dorm room and took all of her classes on a right. computer. But I've talked to a number of other people too in higher ed and certainly in public schools. And there are certainly, I think, some positive things that actually we learned during COVID that we mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have even tried mm-hmm. if we hadn't been put in that situation. But I also think that all of us kind of made the mistake of thinking that when it was over, that everything was just going to go back to normal. Right. Um, and it just hasn't. I think certainly there's been lingering effects that are both you know positive and negative. What do you feel like is the biggest thing uh, that we're having to try to overcome or maybe rethink or step back and maybe redo something that we've been trying to do the last couple of years to or transition out of maybe is a better way to put it. That's a hard question in some ways, at least from, from a higher ed perspective, I think is, is different, obviously, because of the majority of the students aren't living at home with their parents and And so there's a lot of time management and anxiety management that they need to do on their own. We don't always know what's going on if they don't give the counseling center permission to let us know that they need support, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't have easy access to that to be able to um, help students if they are not forthcoming about it. You know what I mean? So... I've tried lots of different things. I've tried, you know, I think that my teaching style has evolved over the years anyway, as we would hope. And right, we we hope our teaching style evolves over the years and that we try to do things differently. And I've tried to shift my classes to be, you know, information driven, whatever it is that we're doing. And then the second part of the class to be more application, hands-on, collaboration kind of an environment. But I'm finding that I have to chunk even smaller and smaller bits and provide even more hands-on time during class in order to do what it is that I want to have them experience, which ends up being that I don't really get to cover the amount of material that I like to cover with them, right? Because there's not... There's not enough time to do that. And I think that's an age old issue that we all as teachers have up against the clock all the time that we can't really cover all the stuff that we think is important. And also, you know, my full time is at Berkeley and I've been there. uh, I've been on faculty full time since 2003, but I actually started in 2001 when I was working on a grant project. It was called the PT3 grant, Preparing Tomorrow's Teachers to Technology. And it was during, you know, the Clinton administration. And a lot of schools of education got this grant. But Berkeley's music ed program happened to get money for this grant. So I started back then. Uh, One of the things that came out of this grant was the fact that in our music education department, we could have two required technology classes, right? So one focuses largely on music creation, which, and and we look at it from the perspective of music creation and how would we as teachers be facilitating music creation with the students in front of us, K-12, right? And that's a lot to do in one semester in and of itself, right? But then the other one was like podcasting and screencasting and developing a digital portfolio and looking at a lot of online resources and, and things like that, right? But I also teach, a couple years ago, started teaching a similar kind of thing, but online through Vandercook for the Vandercook's undergrad program, because I've been teaching in their MECA program for a very long time. And, you know, depending on when, in higher ed, depending on when you teach students where they are in the grid, you know, are in their music ed program and whether they've been able to have any kinds of methods classes where they're learning about 
lesson planning and different philosophies of pedagogy and all that stuff. I feel like my classes are always a little bit of a disadvantage because my class happened before they have those classes. So well, how do I actually apply this to if I'm putting together a lesson for you know, elementary general music or middle school, uh, whether it's uh, general music on the middle school or high school level, or even if it's going to be for how would you use technology as an ensemble director, right? There's so many components to it. And the hard part is that the only thing they have to relate it to is what they had when they were in high school. And so, you know, they use technology all the time, but they don't necessarily use it as a tool for creativity and for productivity right? It's all driven by social media and all that stuff. So they don't know how to think about it and trying to get them to think about it differently can be quite challenging, especially when they're, they don't have any other backing. You know, they can't say, oh, well, I'm doing this in my methods class. So how can I take some of these technology concepts and use them in my lesson plans, which of course my colleagues encourage, but by the time they get to those classes, what they learned in my class doesn't come to the forefront sometimes, right? Because it's been a couple semesters back already. That's a challenge because the grid has to be in such a way because it goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, in the state of Massachusetts, we have certain things that we need to do in order to be, have our program continue to be accredited, right? And every Every school of education, whether it's music or otherwise, has that same issue. And, you know, states differ, but at the end of the day, it's all kind of the same thing, <laughs> right? There might be some slightly different requirements state to state, but it's still kind of the same thing, right? So, yeah. And, I, you know, I think one of the things uh, that's really difficult is technology is advancing at just an ever more and more rapid rate and our institutions you know our universities it's already difficult to get them to change any kind of direction but particularly with education things are changing so fast because you, you mentioned the accreditation because um, I've talked to other colleagues and friends that are trying to incorporate more music technology into their degree programs and and that sort of thing. And, and in a lot of cases, the thing, the hurdles they're running into are hurdles that are left over from that certification process from, you know, mm -hmm. whether you do like you know, National Association of Schools of Music or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. that accreditation uh, body is, you know, those accreditation folks aren't adjusting those benchmarks or qualifications that you have to meet that it's like society and culture has moved on and we're still trying to fit an older model of what a music student is into our university systems. And I'm, I'm not sure how to overcome that. Yeah, no, it's difficult because, you know, a lot of people making those decisions aren't even people that have ever really been an educator, right? It's almost like, you know, people go to medical school and become a doctor, but they don't have any classes in nutrition. <laughs> you have these people making these decisions, but they've never maybe even taken a class that focuses on pedagogy or teaching or, or they've never stepped foot in a classroom of any kind across the spectrum from pre-K all the way through. So it is very difficult to fit it all in. I mean, we're always juggling, like how we fit all this in and still push the envelope of our program to give our students what they need in order to go out and work with the students who are in front of them today, not the students of 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. And then of course, AI to contend with and how are we going to find, how are we going to find the positive way to incorporate that? And, you know, that's going to be a whole other thing. You know, I mean, I certainly have experimented with, you know, chat GPT. And I mean, I, I wrote a whole course this summer for summer classes that I'm teaching for teachers. I did a whole Canva course and Canva, uh, which by the way, like so many teachers signed up for it. I was so, I was so surprised. It's like, you're music teachers, but you want to take a course on Canva. I, I mean, I think it's great, but I was just surprised how many people actually signed up. But um, 
even a tool like Canva, which is free for K-12 educators, has tons of AI built into it, just like so much of what we're using, right? So that's going to be a whole other thing. Like, how do we how do we use that in a positive way? How do we teach our students that, yeah, you can dial up an AI tool and it'll compose a song for you. But in order to even understand what that AI tool just composed for you, you still have to have some understanding about music theory, right? You still have to understand about why are those, why do those chord changes sound good? Or that just was generated and, oh, that doesn't really make so much sense. Why? You still have to be able to do that in order to make positive use of an AI tool, I think. So it doesn't eliminate the need for us as teachers to do what it is that we do. It's just another thing that we're going to have to put into the tool bag and figure out positive ways to deal with it. I think we're a long way off from seeing where AI is going to end up. I think what's happening now is very typical. Of like a what, fire hose. It, well, you know, what technology companies are will often do and Google. So like, you know, Google uh, chat GPT was one of the first, uh, you know, ones that came out. Right. And so Google is notorious for this and it's, it's true for, a lot of other technology companies, but I'll just use, for example, 15 years ago, Google came up with Google Glass, right? So the these technology companies will invent a tool. And a lot of times when they create it, they don't really know what it's going to be able to do. So what they do is they just throw it out there and let people start playing with it. And they let someone else sort of figure out what we're going to end up doing. So, yeah, I remember with Google Glass, like it became this whole like Twitter thing where it was like hashtag if I had mm -hmm. Google Glass. And, you know, the marketing was brilliant mm -hmm. because somehow Google convinced people that if they were privileged enough to be selected as one of their uh, beta testers, then, uh, you know, they earned the privilege of buying their own plane ticket out to the West Coast to visit the Google campus where they could then pay Google again to get the device that they could go around and wear for the next year. And the whole time, Google is just collecting data. They're just seeing what people do with oh, it yeah. because they right. don't know. So, you know, to a large extent, you know, I think that, you know, all these chatbots that are going out there now, particularly the developers, I don't think they know or yeah, I maybe, maybe even have a, have a plan uh, I think we're at the point now where they're just throwing it out there and waiting to see yeah. what people do with it. And I've, yeah, I've, I've I played, a, I've played around with, you know, a few different things that are out there and I'm trying to think, what is it? Music XL or something. That's a test kitchen with Google where, you know, you go in and you type a description of a style or instrument of music, and then it generates two mm -hmm, versions mm -hmm. of what you typed in. And then, you know, you click on which one you think is better and they kind of sell right. it as, Hey, look, you're generating AI music. When the truth is I'm not generating anything. I'm just giving them data that they're feeding back into their models. Right. I don't think anybody knows. I think we're in the the period right now of, yeah. of just figuring, figuring it out. So well, I mean, we're kind of at the mercy of uh, technology companies just in general, right? I mean, look, Spotify just sold Soundtrap back to the original founders of Soundtrap, right? So it's like, okay, well, now, you know, everybody's been using Soundtrap. I mean, I hope that means that it's going to continue to be viable, at least people that have really used that. And I know BandLab is, is an option, but some schools don't allow BandLab in their districts. So, uh, you know, for uh, COPA and FERPA reasons and all of that. So I don't know, uh, you know, using technology, we're at the mercy of whatever they decide <laughs> going to be available or if they take it away. Right. And Google's a, a really good example of a company that does that and has done that all along, you know, and um, and I know it's all in you know, for the evolution of the technology, but it's also, it's also like, well, are we going to be able to make money on this? And if the data says that it's, we can't, then bye-bye, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, if it we was, spent all this, if I, if you'd spent a whole, you know, a whole bunch of time de- developing a, you know, really innovative curriculum around Google Glass, and then all of a sudden it's not there anymore, then that's a problem, right? Yeah. That's, it yeah. puts a sour taste in your mouth because, you know, you know, it is time consuming. And I, and I understand why some teachers are hesitant, you know, because it is time consuming, but I think it's also super, super important. Sure. I mean, I just read yeah. recently where uh, Paul McCartney has released a new song oh, yeah. with, uh, yeah. you know, John Lennon singing mm-hmm. and, um, right. but it's not really John Lennon. I mean, it's like generated. Right. And even, right. you know, some of the big stories that came out, the, you know, guy created a song that sounds like Drake in the weekend and the style right, of the music right. sounds like them, but right. You know, that that was up, but then like YouTube and TikTok or whatever took it down because there's a lawsuit. Well, right. It's it is an original song. And so can you sue somebody for copyright violation on an original composition? Right. And you know, it might sound like Drake in the weekend, but it's not actually their voice. It's you know, it's a computer generated sound. Right. Um right. so I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a whole, you know, legal. It's a wild west. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, right now, they're just, you know, yeah, trying to figure it the out. Wild and, west of it. And so, you know, if they do decide that you can't use an AI model based on someone else's voice that, you know, that is going to be a copyright violation. Well, right now, the I mean, the law doesn't exist. I don't know how they could bring a, a lawsuit for a copyright violation if you go, well, it's an original song and it's not their voice. It might sound like it, but whatever happens, it'll, that stuff is like water. If it found, if it gets blocked one way, it'll just start going somewhere else until Mm -hmm. it, it finds its way through. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, that's kind of how technology works, I guess. So, yeah, but let me ask this question. It's pretty wide open and I've had a lot of conversations with people about it and it means a lot of different things. But it seems like a pretty basic question. But when I say music technology to you, what is that? What does music technology mean to you? Yeah, it uh, music technology means to me a tool that you know someone can use to express their musical ideas. And there's lots of layers to that. Sure, it could be as easy as a student a young student sitting in, let's use Soundtrap as an example, you know, depending how you, the teacher, put that tool in front of the student and what it is that you're talking about, you know, be able to identify loops that express different kinds of emotions, right? And then learn how to put that loop into um, some kind of form inside the arrange window all the way up to, of course, you know, having all the skills to do a full-blown music production on your own. Or it doesn't even have to be, maybe maybe your um, music creation tool, maybe you're, you know, you're using a, a notation tool or, but any kind of tool that allows you to express your musical ideas through sound. And have the ability to manipulate that in some way to your, to your liking. Yeah. And that's, I think that's very similar to how I think about it also, but I know some people that I ask if I say music technology, they, they go, uh, that's a recording studio. That's a, you know, microphones and mixers and mastering and, and I mean, I think that's all Paul part. I think that's part of the whole bucket but that's not the only thing that makes music technology right i mean soundtrap yeah. is music technology but that's music technology yeah in my mind and yeah and, and one of the things like i was just before we started chatting i was just on the berkeley college of music website and one of the things that i loved when i was just looking through the majors and you know if you're a music major you you choose a principal instrument right but i'm going through and one of the things that caught my eye and i loved it is that one of your quote unquote applied instruments that a student can choose it says electronic digital instrument yeah. and, i just uh, went to the edi uh there was a um conference that happened 
last weekend, Connect 23. And it was all, uh, you know, it was hosted by the Electronic uh, Production and Design Department, EPD, lots of acronyms. <laughs> but the whole focus was on EDI, Electronic uh, Digital Instruments. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend all three days for the full day, but Will Coon came and presented about his electronic music group on Saturday morning. And right after that was a group of educators from Sweden who are doing research on how to teach EDI in their schools in, in Sweden. So I, lo I love that. And I know that you know, you're doing uh, a lot of things with Launchpad and, and I don't know, are you using other grid devices with your students or are you mostly just using the Launchpad right now? Well, this past year, I went uh, almost exclusively using the Launchpads, but the first ones I got into was the Korg Nano, which is just like a, oh, yeah. just a 16, I think it's, it's just two rows of eight. So it's not, a, you know, the yep. four by yep. four, but you have also used, you know, everything from 61 key MIDI keyboard to what is the APX, MPX, yeah, MPX mini that, you know, has like, you know, 25 keys and got some pads on it. So, but, you know, one person early on that was also very influential for me when I was trying to figure all this stuff out, his name's Adam Patrick Bell. Um, he's, mm, I he's, know. I just happen to have his book on my desk right now. Yeah, I, actually, I have it too. You're welcome, Dr. <laughs> Bell. But the 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 book, the first book that I got by him that was really influential, the title of the book is called The Dawn of the Doll. Oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I know uh, that book too. Yeah, it was it, that's that was really an aha moment for me because he, you know, basically ends up describing a a doll. And then an input device for that doll, right? Because, you know, the launch pad or a MIDI keyboard or whatever it is, is or your QWERTY keyboard. I mean, it's just an input device, you know, for mm -hmm. the, the DAW. But he described that as the instrument of creation. So, mm -hmm. you know, I tell people, I, you know, I'm a tuba player and I was a band director for, you know, 20 years. So I don't play the flute, but I have to understand how to teach someone else to play the instrument, right? I, I know enough about the instruments to teach someone how to use it. And the purpose of using that instrument is to create music, right? So for me, learning the technology became less daunting because I approached it as basically, I'm not trying to teach mm -hmm. them how to operate right. a doll, but I'm trying to teach them how to use this as an instrument mm -hmm. of creation, Right. Mm -hmm. And I love that again, in that description, because it, you know, electronic digital instrument, and then it goes on to say, you know, EDI comprises a computer, a user configured software, and then any combination of the following controller capabilities. And then it lists, you know, everything from pad controllers to grids, to MIDI keyboards, mixed controls. And so, I mean, it opens that up to, to be anything. And that's one of the things that I love so much about music technology, because, you know, we talk about the gatekeepers. If you, if you want to come get a music degree, you have to be able to perform on a violin or a trumpet or a clarinet or, you know, have this voice. And a lot of people may not have access to that or have interest in creating music that way. Mm -hmm. But when you open it up to say, we're going to use these digital instruments to create. And oh, by the way, you can configure that in a way that works for you in how you make your music. Yeah. It, you know, it's so great because it, it really just transcends the compartmentalization of things, right? Like what you've just described would be exactly the, in my mind, how you could think about it for therapeutic uses as well. To me, the biggest thing is about, you know, their tools of expression and, and there's the combination is in really well, and it's infinity and it's money, <laughs> but you know, you don't have to, it, you don't have to spend a lot of money though. Right. That's right. the thing. But yeah. 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 So I, I, it's exciting, I think. And I mean, I think one of the unique things about Berkeley, which sometimes can can be difficult for some students, the core curriculum requires that they 
can read and that they understand harmony and can do ear training and all that stuff. But they are willing to accept students who may not come with that traditional background. I think it's good. I think it's hard too, but it's a, it's a unique place. Yeah, sure. Well, you've already spent uh, a lot of time with me today and we lost a lot of time because again, the technical issues yeah. I apologize for, but I, I did have one more thing I did want to ask about sure. if you've, if we've got just sure. a, a few more minutes and it's something sure. that, you know, is personal for, for me also, because I have a nephew and a niece who are both on the autism spectrum. Mm. And one of the things I came across that was something y'all are doing at Berkeley is the Institute for Arts Education and Special Needs. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was just wanted to ask about if you know anything about that program and maybe how mm. music technology can be used as a way to engage our special needs students also. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, you know, it's a phenomenal program that was started by Rhoda Bernard. And just a quick little backstory, Berkeley and Boston Conservatory a bunch of years ago merged, but that merger, it's, you know, they merged kind of, and it's like Berkeley and then the conservatory at Berkeley, Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. Rhoda Bernard was originally at the Boston Conservatory and was uh, doing the music education grad program at Boston Conservatory. And so over the past year, the grad program at Boston Conservatory and the undergrad program at Berkeley, we are now one program, one education program. And in the graduate program, in connection with the Institute, that you can get your graduate degree in music education with a, a, a specialization in autism, a certificate. And there's a whole Saturday program that happens every week. And we have a lot of grad students and also students who were undergrad who have been able to work in the Saturday program. And there's a lot of private lessons, voice, uh, tr- you know, traditional acoustic instruments and things like that. But there are technology classes that they have for students as well, using iPads and a lot of use of iPads, you know, some other devices too, the Skoog and, and some things like that. And I think it's really, really important to provide opportunities for students on the spectrum to be able to engage in the arts, whatever those arts are, whether they're musical arts, visual arts, what have you. The It's a really, really strong program. And there's a people out in the field that sit on, on the board that are part of the think tank of that and are trying to provide uh, professional development for teachers so that they have a deeper understanding of how they may be able to include resources and opportunities for students on the on the spectrum in their classes. So it's a great program. And there's a, a podcast that gets published. There's a newsletter. There's a, a blog. They're constantly putting out materials for teachers and students. Um, and so I highly recommend a, a link in, in your podcast for people who like to listen to podcasts, because there's a lot of interviews that, you know, much the same way that you like to interview a lot of music educators. The podcast really focuses on interviewing people who are on the spectrum, who are in, engaged in making music. And it's wonderful. I teach any of those classes myself, but, you know, that department is very closely linked now to the undergrad department. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's wonderful. And um, and that's one of the things that, at least in my experience, has been really great. Fairly early on, uh, when I started doing music technology, I, I, I made a little video during class one day, and I just sort of took my phone and scanned the room, and they were all working on a, an assignment I'd given them. And, you know, as you look at the students in this classroom, there are two students in here that this is the only class they're passing. There's another student in here that has been in the United States for less than two months and barely speaks any English. There are students in here that have made nothing but straight A's since they took finger painting mm-hmm. in kindergarten. You know, there there's students in here that are EBD and are in small group settings all day except for this class. And then I asked the question, I went, as I'm, as you're looking at this video, as I'm scanning across the room, can you tell me which ones are which? Right. And you can, you know, they're all engaged. They're all doing something. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of the great things about 
technology uh, and using those kind of tools is that it can meet them where they are. Right. And that's um, the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. And I even had another really unique experience I had, and this was a, a, a different time, but I had a student that I didn't realize at first but the student was mute. He did not speak when he, if he was at home, he could speak, but outside of, you know, very specific settings, he, he didn't speak, mm -hmm. but he would begin to ask me questions in class. And I would walk over and he would just point at things on the screen. And I, you know, I walk around with a set of headphones because, you know, we have two outputs on every computer. So I'll just plug my headphones into that student workstation, whatever, if I want to hear what they're doing. So he would point and then look at me. And, you know, at first I was like, what are you trying to ask me? And then I figured it out. And, um, I, you know, I began to understand what it was he was trying to figure out how to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but, but the thing that was so amazing about this, you know, I tell people, I said, you know, he wasn't verbal, but if you listen to the music he created, he had mm -hmm. a lot to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, absolutely. And it, because when I started teaching the music tech thing, it was a, it was a side gig. Totally. Like I was a band director. Like, you know, this was temporary until I had enough kids to fill up all my band sections and then I would move on. You know, there were some really impactful things that happened to me as a teacher when I saw students that I wouldn't typically see in mm -hmm. the band classroom. And, and I tell people all the time at my school, since I moved to music technology full time, and it's been six, seven years now, mm. you know, our, our band and, and choir and orchestra programs have continued to grow. At our school, the net result is we've got 300 or so students every year that are taking a music course that otherwise wouldn't be, because for the most part, the students I get aren't your band, orchestra, and choir kids. That's the whole point, right? Isn't it? Isn't the point to provide an opportunity for all students? And so much can come from providing a creative space, which, you know, it's a huge paradigm shift, right? Because if you're an ensemble director, you're the director. In essence, they're doing what it is that you're asking them to do, right? But it's the paradigm shift where you're, yes, you're going to provide them with some skills that they need, but you're going to give them what they need in order to express themselves for wherever they are in the curriculum at that point. And then you, you get out of the way. And the more they know they have a safe space in order to do that, the more you're going to see exactly what you just described. So it really says a lot about who you are and how you are providing that for them, because it, it, it has nothing to do per se with the technology, right? The technology is just the means of the action. It's really, it's really the environment and giving them the support and the knowledge that they need to get themselves going. And then they're going to come say, you know, I have a question. Can you show me this? Right. And you're going to have that that wide range of students that student had those that straight A student and then that that student who who's on the other side who is nonverbal but they're all functioning in the same space i mean what's more beautiful than that really you know yeah. it's like that's a such a microcosm of what the world should actually be you know you don't see the division right what you pointed out to those teachers by scanning the room that way is uh, you can't point out any division here in ability by seeing what's going on by looking at these students and um i think that's a real powerful metaphor for where i'd like to see the world go <laughs> from here on out right yes yes i, I totally agree totally agree yeah. Well, you've already spent much more time than we had planned on, uh, but I, and I do appreciate you being here so much. As we just kind of finish up, I'll just ask, you know, you have any just parting words of wisdom? Well, you know, good teaching is good teaching, right? And I think that if you are really, if that's really truly who you are at heart, you're a teacher at heart, you're going to find the best way you can to give your students the best possible musical experience they can possibly have while they're with you. And technology is one piece of that, but it's an important piece because that's the world we live in. And we have to also remember that the students that are in front of us, I mean, the students that are in front of me, it's different because I have students that are coming to become music educators, right? But the students that are in front of the K-12 
music educator, you're not necessarily there to educate them to become professional musicians. You're there to give them a love of making music that will carry through the rest of their lives, whether that, you know, strumming on a ukulele or, you know, having GarageBand on their iPad and doing that instead of scrolling through, you know, social media, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, or doing, you know, having your own home studio as a hobby, right? There's so many ways that we can be lifelong music makers, whether it's from an acoustic in instrument or the use of technology. And it's really we want our students to feel the power of expressing themselves musically. And technology is a piece of that. Whether you're you know, a classroom teacher, I believe it's true for ensemble teachers too. There's lots of ways to incorporate technology in a creative way that won't take away from the bottom line of the concert. And um, it will help your students. So there are a lot of good things and you're not going to know all of it. And you also can't be afraid to not know all of it. And you can't be afraid for a student to come up to you and say, hey, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, awesome, I didn't know that. You know, that has to be part of it. You know, you have to be open. They're gonna teach you as much as you're gonna teach them, hopefully, so. I have certainly found that to be true myself. Yeah. So, but again, I can't thank you enough for uh, sharing your time with me. I hope we can find a time to continue the conversation. Yeah, I would love to. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, I appreciate it. And that's going to wrap up the discussion I have with Dr. Stephanie Langle. Make sure you check the show notes for the links mentioned in the episode. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That's one of the best things you could do to support this channel. That and share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you haven't, make sure you visit my website, www.mutechteachernet.com where you'll find lots of resources for music education and music technology teachers, as well as anyone who's just looking for information about music technology. I also have a YouTube channel, at Mutech TeacherNet on YouTube. Again, one of the best things you could do to support the work that we're doing here is to subscribe to that channel and tell your friends and colleagues about it. Until next time, this has been Heath with the Music Technology Teacher Network. Advocate. Support. Inspire. Create music, technology, technology, tech, 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 music, technology, teacher, teacher.